0: So, what is your relationship with anger? And how much of your stress and exhaustion is fueled by repressed anger and rage? And I'm curious, how do you respond when those around you express anger? Our experiences in life, our experiences at our places of work and education, and our conditioning from culture all play significant roles. In how we view and, most importantly, respond to anger and rage within us and around us. Plus, so many personal and professional development teachings tell us how to suppress anger instead of encouraging us to integrate and learn from our anger. These approaches, and many really, I think, are well-meaning, teach us to shut down our anger and celebrate when we repress it without concern for the cost to our physical, relational, and emotional well-being or the systems in which we live and work. How we develop such a quick reflex to suppress and fear our anger makes sense. And for women, especially black and brown women, we learn our anger and rage come off as unbecoming and distancing, which can be the death of a promotion, a deal, or financial advancement. Many experience firsthand the negative impact of expressing our anger, which can bring about a dangerous backlash that can impact not only our well-being, but our safety. But when we shift the focus from seeing anger solely as dangerous or something to be feared and instead befriend it and learn from it, so much changes in how we lead and do life. And before we go into today's episode, I just want to thank everybody for listening as we are on the final countdown to my 100th episode. I am so excited to share with you the learnings I have from doing something a hundred times. It's It's kind of incredible. It would be such an honor and so appreciated if you left a review, did a rating, And shared this podcast with some folks that you think may benefit this really matters y'all especially as we're really trying to get the word out about the podcast and it would mean a lot so thank you to those who've already left ratings and reviews and shared this show and just thank you for those who are to take the time to leave a rating so appreciate that now on to the show
1: Almost every woman I ever talked to would always say, I'm stressed or I'm tired. And you scratch the surface just a little bit, like just two questions in. And what you find is that, in fact, they're very angry about something, but they can't bring themselves to say, I'm very angry. I'm chronically disappointed. I feel taken for granted. I'm doing three jobs. I'm taking care of my parents, my children, my spouse, my sisters, my brothers, my coworkers. In fact, just pushing a little, asking a few more questions, you can really see the degree to which we ourselves internalize the need to minimize. So we use all these words that reduce the import of the anger.
0: I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. All right, y'all, in my recent binge of British crime shows, one of the shows I watched had a moment in its final episode that caused me to hit pause and replay it a few times. Now, I'll leave out the show's name so I don't give away any spoilers, but towards the end of this series, A wife confronts her misogynist husband after learning about all the horrible things her husband did to women from one of his victims. And his response was so common and yet still so hard to hear. And he replies to her, Oh, she will say anything. She's mad. And I will spare you my attempts at a British accent. And his wife responded without skipping a beat, looking at him with a stone cold glare and asked, Oh, Are all women mad? (laughs) Now, while here in the US, we often use the term crazy instead of the British use of the term mad, but it's so common and it's such a common trope when women have had enough and stand up for themselves only to be dismissed as mentally ill versus credible and worthy of being believed and listened to. You know, there is so much to be enraged about right now, like so much. <laughs> and I've heard countless stories from clients, friends, colleagues sharing how they were minimized or devalued or not believed when they did not stay silent in the face of injustice towards themselves or others. And I know for me, when I release the pressure on my own internal dam of emotions and feel even a trickle of my rage, I sense it course through my body and feel the immense urge to take action. And then a part of me that is expertly skilled at reining in my rage quickly chimes in and edits my responses and my narrative around what I'm feeling, often muting or minimizing what I'm feeling. Now, this reflects years of my own internalizing of the many messages to not be angry, to be nice and polite and keep the peace, right? many of you know the drill. And I've been thinking a lot about my clinical training too, and how aspects of it have done a number, and how so many with my training approach anger and rage too. And instead of hanging out with the anger, some theories teach that anger is a secondary emotion and we need to get to the root of it to heal it. So yeah, sure, I agree wholeheartedly. But... (laughs) when we weaponize this approach to anger and rush too quickly to name in a secondary emotion before witnessing and understanding the anger in front of us, we miss the important data offered by our anger. And when we don't witness um, the anger of those in front of us or our own and instead see it as something to fear, we can collude with culture and reinforce the messages to bypass our anger and rage instead of witnessing it, trusting it, and learning from it. I believe our anger offers us a powerful compass, and when we suppress it, we lose our way along with our well-being and our sense of self-leadership. Our repressed anger leads to self-doubt, questioning our worth, along with many well-documented health issues, and we end up gaslighting ourselves to survive these messages from family and teachers and bosses in a culture that demonizes anger and rage in women. And we witness on repeat the violence caused by repressed anger, along with the inequity of how it can be shared. But suppressed anger and rage in the face of injustice has to go somewhere. And I return to this excerpt from Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness. It is a book I keep going back to since it was released back in 2017. And she wrote, anger is a catalyst. Holding on to it will make us exhausted and sick. Internalizing anger will take away our joy and spirit. Externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change and forge connections. It's an emotion that we need to transform into something life-giving. Love, change, compassion, justice. Or sometimes anger can mask a far more difficult emotion like grief regret, or shame, and we need to use it to dig into what we're really feeling. Either way, anger is a powerful catalyst, but a life-sucking companion. And I really see anger as our CTA, right? It's our call to action. When we fear, don't trust, or respect our anger's CTA, we miss important data and stay frozen, leaving us trapped in our rage. And when we feel frozen and trapped, (laughs) this would happen to any living creature. This activates any burdens of trauma we hold, leaving us holding a lot of emotion that eventually turns on us or explodes outward in a way that does not align with our values. Now, I think it's really important to note that we need to make sure we differentiate between feeling our anger and responding to it, though they often get conflated. And the space between feeling your anger and responding happens lightning fast, often before we can put language to what just happened. And this is what we call, in my line of work, the work. The work of building emotional capacity and emotional literacy. And this work requires us to build lifelong practices versus these quick fix mindset hacks that are often offered and serve as band-aids that honestly, I think do more harm than good. The rhythms and repetitions of internal family system self-leadership practices, Brene Brown's shame resilience practices, and a systems lens on change are the practices I use myself and teach my clients. And I often say shame resilience clears the way and self-leadership offers the deep roots to sustain courage, compassion, and change. And my Unburdened Leader guest today wrote a beautifully written and well-cited book documenting the impact of suppressed rage in women on themselves and those around them. Saraya Shamali is an award-winning author and activist, and to be honest with you, a really, really just awesome human being. She writes and speaks frequently on topics related to gender norms, inclusivity, social justice, free speech, sexualized violence, and technology. She's the former executive director of the Representation Project, director and co-founder of the Women's Media Center Speech Project, and she has long been committed to expanding women's civic and political participation. Soraya is the author of Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, which was recognized as a best book of 2018 by the Washington Post Fast Company, Psychology Today, and NPR, and is also a co-producer of a WMC PSA highlighting the effects of online harassment on women in politics in America. Her work is featured widely in media documentaries, books, and academic research. And As an activist, Soraya spearheaded successful campaigns of challenging corporations to address online hate and harassment, restrictive content, moderation and censorship, and institutional biases that impact free speech. Now listen for when Saraya talks about what happens when we ignore our anger and let it fester. Pay attention to when Soraya talks about how we rationalize men's anger and women's anger and the important differences between the two perspectives in our culture. And notice when Saraya talks about the intersection of gender roles and anger suppression such wisdom here. And so much, I think you'll want to pause and take notes. So be ready for that. Now, please welcome Saraya Shamale to the
1: Unburdened Leader podcast.
0: Saraya Shamale, welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh my goodness. Thank you. I'm really honored to be here with you today.
0: No, I've been giddy about this conversation. I think there's like, you know, we're going to talk about rage and I'm so excited to talk about this emotion, but you wrote this incredible book, Rage Becomes Her, and you wrote it, it like it was 2018, so mm-hmm. it was a prophecy. What I loved about it was so many things what you wrote, but you sourced so many incredible areas of research and writing, and it just read so beautifully. And it felt like oh, thank you. It felt like um, it was just a one big book of validation and a, a permission slip to do things differently and. So your book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, I want to go into it, but I'd love for you to share how writing this book kind of brought clarity to your own emotional process, especially mm-hmm. regarding your relationship with Rage.
1: I would say that the book was the mm-hmm. result of my going through that process, mm-hmm. honestly. I think if you had asked me in my young adulthood Really through my 40s, if I felt anger, I wouldn't have said yes. I would have said no. I'm just not angry. I don't get angry. It's just not something I feel. When, in fact, I was feeling it all the time, I just couldn't recognize it anymore, which is why when I sat down to write the book, early in the book, I was thinking, and, and I don't mean to just generalize for myself, which is frankly why the, the book is quite data intensive, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to just universalize. But it was very clear to me over decades of studying feminism, writing about feminism, thinking about women's experiences, that the ability to recognize anger is socialized out of many girls and feminine people, feminized people. And that's the problem, right? Because mm-hmm. if, if you don't acknowledge it and do something about it, and it just stays festering inside, it really only hurts you and your relationships. Um, and then I argue in a kind of butterfly effect, it is profoundly damaging to the society and to social trust and to all of these other things. So I don't think I could have even thought about writing, think about writing the book without having for my own in my own personal life come to terms with what that meant. And I came to terms with it because I started getting sick. And I thought, what is going on? Why why do I feel this way? Why do I keep having these very highly physical manifestations of tension and anger and stress? Um, and that is what pushed me. And I didn't I didn't want my children. And frankly, I didn't want women and younger women. To go through what I went through, I'm like I really would have loved it if someone had talked to me about this, taught me how to think about it, taught me how to use it. Um, so I I kind of envisioned the book as that kind of resource.
0: Yeah, it it really is radically different because I will say we're taught how to not show our anger and our rage. That I could I could go through so many different stages in my life from right you know family to school to jobs so it really isn't a good reframe and you know let's be let's be honest there is so much to be angry about right mm-hmm. now even enraged and outraged nowadays and you know i was even thinking just before this conversation you know about rage and how it di- i guess I, when i ask how do you define rage
1: and how would you
0: differentiate it from outrage
1: so that's a very good question. I would start by differentiating it from anger. By the time mm. a person feels rage, chances are very good, highly probable that their angers are really are already been distorted and maladapted, right? The whole point of anger is to eliminate itself. <laughs> you get angry so you don't have the problem that made you angry, mm. right? But if you never name the problem, if you never ask for the support that you need If people don't provide it, if they take you for granted, whatever the situation is, and you end up in this feel, this, this conundrum of rage, which again, for women is not a validated emotion. People don't like it in men either, but when men are enraged, there's a lot more leeway to interpret it as positive. He's -hmm. enraged because he sees a political injustice. He's enraged because he was repeatedly unfairly treated. He's oh, enraged. Protecting. He's protecting yes, somebody. protecting somebody, right? And, and so we have all these mechanisms for rationalizing male rage, even when mm. it's destructive. But mm-hmm. we don't have any mechanism other than kind of mama bear protection that rationalizes women's rage. All other forms of women's rage, for the most part, are negatively dealt with. We can understand a mother being enraged to protect her children, but we cannot understand a mother being enraged because as a mother, she's treated so poorly by her society. Is there a
0: difference in your mind between rage and outrage?
1: Um, Yes, I I think that they're clearly related. Mm -hmm. But you can be outraged without feeling rage. You can just be stunned and shocked and appalled right? But out of that outrage, you might end up in a place of compassion, right? Like I, I'm outraged when I, I'm a pacifist, right? So war outrages me. And there's a quality of rage that goes along with that. Because I think, my God, every system that we live with is calibrated to cultivate war. But at the same time, the outrage that I feel can be channeled into how do we have compassion for the suffering that war engenders, as opposed to the rage of people who continue to promulgate it. Mm. Do you see what I mean? So I think I, I do think that that they're related, but I don't think they're necessarily the same at all.
0: And you write and recommend that women hold on to their rage instead of letting it go. Can you say more about why you recommend that?
1: I don't know if this is the part you're talking about, but I talk about forgiveness, the burden of forgiveness that is very gendered. Women are always supposed to forgive and forget. If they're in abusive relationships, they're supposed to somehow believe that they can forgive and change this person, that it's their responsibility to to participate in the relationship in a way that saves the other person, or that if there's a wrong that happens, it's better for everyone if the woman lets go of that anger and... Um, doesn't impose it, this is the key, It doesn't impose it and its demands on other people. So I do think there is this expectation of letting go, and that expectation is tied to a different degree of sacrifice and selflessness that girls are taught is important to their femininity. So we know from studies of children, many of which I included, that we really hold girls to a different standard of care and other focus. So even politeness norms, right? We expect girls to speak um, with respect for others, not to interrupt, not to engage in disruptive um, sounds or activities. Whereas when boys do that, we tend to excuse it as their rambunctiousness or even leadership qualities, right? And so by the time girls are 8, 9, 10 – they're already remarkably other-focused in a way that leads to their self-abnegation. And one of the ways we do that is to penalize them and discourage them from expressing anger, which very early on in life is associated with masculinity. In the same way, in fact, that the softer emotions like empathy or fear or sensitivity are denied to boys Mm. as feminine weaknesses. Right. You know, and so in fact, we hurt all the children by gendering these emotions, which all of us have. No question. You know, and so I would say that the other focus isn't bad. It's good to be, it's good to be kind to people, but that's different from being nice for the sake of being nice. It's different from performing a kind of niceness in a way that is very self destructive.
0: Absolutely.
1: Right. So, so that's how I would make the distinction.
0: I often say that, you know, niceness is complicit in appeasing where kindness is is loving and generous. Mm -hmm. I want to circle back to something you said just to clarify that there's almost, if women are holding on to like this saying, yes, we should hold on to our rage, but we often get told to let it go because people are, it's an imposition to others to
1: navigate our anger and our rage. Is that what you're saying? I think it's an imposition on others. It's considered selfish because- Anger comes from a place where you say, "I need something. And I want. I, I want something. I need something." Or somehow you, other person, or you, family, or you, coworker, or you, boss, or you, you know, representative in government, have failed me, have disappointed me, have done something that is a threat to me or an injustice. And if again, this is why I keep going back to the example of mothers. You know, we see this all. The, I talk about this all the time. Many large-scale influential political movements in the United States have been led by women who start organizations that have mother in the name: Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, Mothers for Saying Gun Reform, um, the Temperance Movement, the Children's Defense Fund. Are all you know? These were mothers, and as long as women tip their hat at the idea that their primary role is maternal and that they're doing it on someone else's behalf, we understand that anger. Hmm. But, you know, we aren't, the society is not happy. Like, imagine if there was a single women for gun control or single women for temperance. Or, like, you can't, it's so absurd because the culture just can't even fathom that, right? But as long as mothers are acting as mothers and reinforcing that fundamental sex-segregated role in society then they can do and say a lot more. But otherwise, they're selfish. You nailed it. That's
0: exactly what I've heard on repeat for decades, that if I say I'm mad, I'm bothered, the internal dialogue is I am just so selfish. And so there's that self-silencing.
1: Right. What right do I have? I shouldn't be putting, what right do I have? And the other thing too is, one of the defining characteristics of masculinity is agency and self-sufficiency. Whereas we're taught that for women, it's relationality and dependence, not even interdependence. We think of women as dependent because they need the protection of men or stronger people. And so to be angry threatens to break those dependencies and relationships. So many women these days, I, I see all these trends about mental load and emotional labor. And, you know, a lot of it is that. A lot of it is The fact that you are supposed to keep all the machinery moving without imposing on people ever the fact that you're doing it or exhausted from doing it or disappointed because other people aren't helping you to do it or just not doing what they're supposed to.
0: My my brain is spinning a little bit too as I'm thinking about this, about how there's almost this sense of a woman's rage is disconnecting. It's counter to our role, yet... Those moments in life where I've had like shared righteous anger, it's been Mm -hmm. connecting, it's been healing, it's been validating, and it's led to other emotions and other experiences, but joyful ones and creative ones. Yes. There's such agency and creativity in it, but it's not like I think some of that term, like outrage porn, it's not like just something where it feels exploitive and people kind of manipulate. Especially on social media, but yeah, I just think that's the fear: is I'm going to lose community, I'm going to lose connection. I'm breaking the rules, and, and we are because of how we've been conditioned, right? But that place where that where my righteous anger and rage has been welcomed and validated has led to deepening connection and learning too. So,
1: right, and greater intimacy. I, I and would greater say greater
0: intimacy. How, yeah.
1: Yes. say more. How can, how can you have a uh, a truly reciprocal, egalitarian, intimate, caring relationship with people, a spouse, child, parents, whomever, friends, if you can't tell them what you need and think that they're okay with that. Like a lot of women are so fearful of saying what they need because in fact there's a huge risk, which is that they'll learn that there isn't reciprocal care. Yeah. That, that the response is... Okay, so what? Stop complaining. I'm not changing. I'm not doing. And that's a really hard thing because then what? Yeah. You know?
0: And that's, that's a wall that a lot of people hit and and there's some hard decisions. and That's exactly uh, right. That's where a lot of acquiescing comes into play and a lot of suppressed anger. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into the, the impact of that in a minute, but I, I want to ask you about another statement that you wrote about saying that you believe anger doesn't get in the way of women being heard, but it's the way. And I want you to, I know you're touching on this a little bit, but walk me through your thought process for this approach. Every
1: political movement Mm. starts in anger. Someone feels an injustice. Someone sees something wrong. People coalesce around their outrage or their need or the necessity of their understanding the situation that they're in and having to change it. And so I start off by quoting Audre Lorde who wrote extensively about this and who said there's so much information in the anger that we have. So why don't, why don't we listen to it? You know? And so when we detach anger from femininity, when we socialize Mm -hmm. girls to distance themselves from this very key defensive emotion, they lose access to that information. You know, and so in fact, the expression of anger is almost incidental because just speaking out loud with clear thoughts and asking for change makes you angry. You know, there's no right way to do it. So that if you're a young woman, a girl, no distinction is made, as I tried to describe, between being assertive and confident being considered aggressive and being angry. You can be assertive without being aggressive or angry. You can be aggressive without being angry. You can be angry without being assertive or aggressive. They're they're different things, right? But in fact, even starting in very young childhood, a very confident, plain-spoken girl is considered rude or impolite or... Um, abrupt, difficult or abrupt. And if she's yeah. a young black girl, it's even more dangerous because if she's a young black girl, she's going to be disciplined, suspended, expelled, policed in school. Like there are real risks that come with this, you know? And so at every stage, there are sort of stereotypes about either age or identity or ethnicity, um, that are just designed to tone police women. And silence them.
0: And I'm I'm raising a a neurodivergent daughter, you know, Mm -hmm. and and just even how we experience folks who process information, who communicate differently based on their wiring too, Mm -hmm. and their way of experiencing the world and information and emotion. So there's a lot layered in that too.
1: Especially I would say with neurodivergent girls who it's much more difficult for them to Recognize and conform to societal norms that are imposed on all of us. So, in fact, very often also neurodivergent children will experience heightened anger and frustration. And that makes it doubly difficult, right? Because not only is that a way of saying, I have needs, I have something's not working, something, you know, is causing me to feel stress or threat or whatever the feeling is. But then instead of listening to what the person is saying, and this happens to women throughout their lives, people get angry at their expression. Yep.
0: Yep. And the masking is exhausting. It's debilitating. It can lead to mental and physical implications. And we miss out on so much um, in that.
1: That's right. And girls especially get to be very good at masking at a very early age. So good. They're so young when they're already masking. And that's because all along we we tend to have, Then this is lots of studies. Anybody can go look them up. But Mm -hmm. we really do hold girls to a different standard. And this is really interesting to me in the education system. People, you know, for two decades now, we've been hearing about the boy crisis in education, and there are some legitimate concerns.
0: But in fact,
1: girls in schools might be getting better grades, A lot of that has to do with the fact that they might be conforming and quiet because they're expected to be in much greater numbers, and then they're rewarded for doing it. And so they may not even be understanding the work that they're doing. But once they're not disruptive, people are like, oh, she's doing so well. And that's really bad for everybody too.
0: You also believe that saying, just saying, I'm angry matters for women and our society over our standard default of self self silencing. So to be able just to name I'm angry. Can you say more about that? Yeah,
1: I think I think there's self-silencing, clearly damaging, but easily socialized, right? But beyond the self-silencing there's also the persistent minimization. Oh, it's nothing. Oh, I'm just a little tired. That was really irritating. Um, mm-hmm. I'm stressed. You know, I, a few <laughs> years ago, I really realized if I bump into a man who's a friend and I say, how are you? Chances said, before COVID certainly were pretty good. He would never say, I'm so stressed. I'm really exhausted. I, you know, I don't get much sleep. He'd probably say, I'm good. Thanks. Works good. Or, you know, whatever. But almost every woman I ever talked to would always say, I'm stressed or, I'm tired. And you scratch the surface just a little bit, like just two questions in. And what you find is that, in fact, they're very angry about something. But they can't bring themselves to say, I'm very angry. I'm chronically disappointed. I feel taken for granted. I'm doing three jobs. I'm taking care of my parents, my children, my spouse, my sisters, my brothers, my coworkers. And so, in fact, just pushing a little, asking a few more questions you can really see the degree to which we ourselves internalize the need to minimize. So we use all these words that reduce the import of the anger. I
0: I, I agree. And I just think about a lot of my I was wonderful community of mom friends too, but it's also occupational hazard with my training yeah. as a psychotherapist and as a coach, right? That if I go too deep too quickly, they're like, ah, you know, because if they were they're like that, oh, yeah. okay. See, uh, you know, but that if to acknowledge that it's like a house of cards. Yes, and there's I almost agree. This, there's that protection too. That if I I don't have the space to even go there, right, is what I sense from a lot of incredible folks just trying to keep it all together.
1: You. It's one of the reasons I thought I am a writer, but I did think this was very interesting. Narrative therapy, writing things down, it engages a different part of the brain. But it's also slows you down, right? That fear you described, I think, is real. If you have to sit there and you think, let me write how I'm feeling. And can I say the words? A lot of women can't. I couldn't, right? For the years, I I would never say I'm angry. And then I thought, but wait, why won't I say it? What am I scared of? What's going to happen if I say I'm angry? And why is that inhibiting me, right? And so... I do say it's important to use the words. And then, so you label all your emotions, you know, not just that one. Right. But then you have to make meaning out of it. And for me, writing has always enabled me to do that in a thorough and thoughtful way. And I think that that process is a good way to regulate the fear of everything rushing through the door and crushing you.
0: Mm. Yeah, I I just think this is where it hits on that issue we have overall as a culture. We have a discomfort problem. We are Oh yes, absolutely. A capacity for any difficult emotion isn't there. And so I mean, I love I love the approach of writing. The slowing down's scary because then it's the noticing and the space. And so but by saying I am angry, you said not only does it matter for women, but you said it matters. For our society. Can you say more about that?
1: Yes, I, I, you know, I feel this pretty strongly. I, and the way I think I put it was that a society that doesn't respect women's anger doesn't respect women, right? Because in fact, anger is an expression of, it it is a a signal emotion. Mm -hmm. It's a sign that there's something wrong, that there's a threat, that there's an injustice, that you or the people, what you care about, are not being taken care of, right? In fact, we recognize all of that for white men. We recognize some of that for other men, black and brown men. Now, just to be clear, in the United States, anger is not an accessible emotion for black men because they'll end up immediately criminalized for expressing anger. So much so that if you remember the Key and Peel skit, the anger translator for President Obama. the, the they, they literally had skits where they would show Obama saying something in a calm, right. measured tone. And then they would do an entire skit about how angry he was and what he really wanted to say. And that was all very funny. But in fact, not funny at the same time, right? Because right. he was bookended by two presidents who had no problem expressing anger, were rewarded for expressing anger, and leveraged public anger, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book, because that was very clearly the case when Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton were running for president. Both of those men could look unhinged, could get red in the face, could you know, act in horrible ways. And people, because it confirmed our ideals of masculinity, trusted them more, thought they were more like leaders, whereas for a woman to do that, because it's so transgressive, it undermines her authority, her moral authority, and her leadership. So Hillary Clinton then had to stay perfectly calm at all times, which meant she really couldn't tap into populist anger, and then was additionally called inauthentic, because she just couldn't show emotion. Because any emotion she showed would have been weaponized against her. It was a
0: horrible vice grip, which leads me to my next question. You wrote extensively about this in your book, and it's something that I've been sitting with and having conversations with people. And I I guess first I want to ask, what was going through your mind when you saw the data that the majority of white women voted to elect Donald Trump for president, someone who was explicitly not respectful of women in so many very clear and crass and violent ways. What what yeah, was your I mean, experience when you saw that data? I think I'm
1: probably not a great person to ask because, <laughs> in fact, probably, like I grew up in a black majority country. I came here when I was a teenager to finish school. My experience of race and racial dynamics and gender are my formative experience were in a colony, a British colony, not even a country that had independence yet. So mm. I'm still in the process, decades later, of figuring out race in America, right? Like just th- look, thinking about the differences. And so, as a young woman feminist in high school and college, my feminist formation was in a lot of black radical thought. So it was not surprising to me that white mm. women voted for Donald Trump. It was disappointing. It was frustrating. But it was, I could understand it. I could, I could understand exactly why they voted for Donald Trump. And they voted for Donald Trump because of a whole long, I mean, the list is as long as my arm, but that doesn't make it any better. You know, it is what it is. They, they voted for him and they will again. You know, and so that comes back to me to what you said about discomfort. We refuse to sit with the discomfort of our history, of the violence of our history, of the white supremacy of our history, of the genocides of our history, and of the way that misogyny is threaded through all of those things.
0: So, okay, getting a little vulnerable here. So my shock when I saw that, I mean, obviously I can my the bubbles I'm in the privilege that I have my I I get it mm-hmm. and I still there's parts of me that it's like one of those things it just seems so obvious why this is not a good choice yes and yet I read and then I know I mean I was I'm steeped in psychology I yeah, understand you can understand it all it, it, but it's still this this internal dialogue so so can you name some you said you there's reasons you could well, as long as your arm what are some of the top reasons
1: there. For I'm, I'm a secular woman activist. So one reason to me is that religiosity is much more powerful in the United States than in other peer nations. So you had a lot of white Christian evangelicals and Catholics voting for Trump. And those are very conservative, gender, binary, sex segregated, complementary roles for men and women. And in those systems of belief, Even if you're a strong, intelligent, working woman, you still go into a place of worship where women cannot have priestly authority and where access to the divine has to be mediated by a man and into spaces where women's voices are silenced. Let me just put that out there. So culturally, the runoff effects of conservative religious cultures include men as leaders and women as followers. That's thing one. Thing two is that if you're a white woman in a white supremacist society and you feel that you're under assault and that darker people are coming to get you and will change your society and are taking... I mean, there's a lot of fear and disgust and contempt. And so proximity to a person who has power in that society, a white man and a white power structure makes logical sense. I need to align myself with the thing that's going to keep me safe. So all over the world, we know that the first people to support authoritarian leaders are women who are in the most unequal societies gender-wise. It doesn't matter if you are in Afghanistan, if you're in Illinois, if you're in Germany, if you're in Kenya, if you're in Brazil, the same dynamic happens because what those women want is rules punishment for people who break those rules, and a strong leader who's going to make them feel safer. And I'll just add one last thing, which is the intimacy of relationships matters. If you love your spouse, if you love your children, particularly if you have young white boys who feel under attack in the society, that's a whole other conversation, right? The privilege and entitlement versus the oppression. So it's a complex equation, Right for we need white women to break with whiteness in order to find a path to a saner gender gender relationships, you know.
0: Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission and your boundaries all those boundaries they're sacred navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence clarity and calm and that could be scary depending on your relationship with anger now i know you don't mind making the hard decisions but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up old echoes of doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned and has a deep respect and appreciation for the wisdom of your anger and rage. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, When time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I want to get to some of the very juicy, powerful quotes from your book that I'd love for you to elaborate on. This one just like jumped out at me. You said, self-help is a (laughs) neoliberal view saying that everything is the fault of the individual. We can't self-help our way to being heard, taken seriously, paid fairly, cared cared for adequately, and treated with dignity. We cannot self-help our way to peace or to justice. Can you say... A little bit more, even though that's a whole conversation, too. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: mean, I think, you know, I I think the summary of that is you need self-help when you're not being helped, when your society Mm -hmm. doesn't care for you, when the people around you cannot possibly meet your needs because you're living in systems that are designed to deny your rights and your needs. Um, And so, yeah, I'm not a big, you can tell, self-help fan. I mean, certainly we can all do things to improve maybe our day-to-day lives or to reduce the stressful impacts of the circumstances of our lives. But self-help is not the path to revolutionizing society or changing norms. I mean, it's just not. It's a very conservative uh, ideology. Mm. Hmm.
0: It's also one that, costs money and ooh, time ooh. Especially and makes, women. Us, makes, makes us feel bad. It's a Band-Aid that doesn't stick. All right, so here's this is another quote that I think encapsulated a lot of what uh, my leadership clients in particular talk about. You wrote, when a woman shows anger in institutional, political, and professional settings, she automatically violates gender norms she's met with aversion, perceived as more hostile, irritable, less competent, and likable the kiss of death for a class of people expected to maintain social connections. The same people who might opt to work for an angry sounding aggressive man are likely to be less tolerant of the same behavior if the boss were a woman.
1: You know, I think we see that everywhere. We see that in schools with disrespect for women teachers. Mm -hmm. We see it in the workplace for the double standards that Women who want power, like power, claim power, have power, they're just subject to a totally different set of rules. They cannot express anger the same way. When they express the anger, it, it rebounds on them in a negative way. Um, I tried to cite, frankly, as many studies as I could find because I'm a firstborn Catholic girl, which means I try <laughs> and use data to convince people even though I know it won't work. It's very hard to... Be a woman leader without signaling that you're going to nurture people and care for them and put them first. Men don't have to do that the same way. But what we also know is that even though the anger helps men leadership profiles, it doesn't actually help them lead. This is the catch, right? In times of crisis, people trust women more. You know, They, they trust women leaders more. And they trust women leaders because in the end, whether they put it this way or not, the, the anger that men have, the chest thumping, the machismo, you know, we see that with, with leaders all the with presidents especially all the time. The ones who can express anger do express anger, but that's no substitute for, for substantive policy. You know, you can see there's lots of bluster, but, but what the women have to deliver is more substance. Yes, exactly.
0: Yeah, it, it's a false sense of security, that kind of hubris where it actually just perpetuates more violence and it makes folks so vulnerable. All right. Another quote is, and you had a whole chapter of this, and I wish I had that chapter early in my clinical career because I've seen this play out. But you said, women who repress their anger are twice as likely to die from heart-related disease, yeah. noting that is the number one cause of death for women of a certain age, too. Yes. So, yeah, can you say a little bit more about that?
1: You know, there are a lot of studies about this at this point. Yes. And what was shocking to me, I will tell you, not once but twice during my copy edit process, a fact checker and a lawyer, both men, the only men who read my book before it was published, both men called me out on that, that entire section and said I was wrong and that that wasn't true. And I had cited, as I do, 10 studies, right? Yes. And so the first time it happened, the first time the copy editor read it, and literally in the, I, mean, he, he, I could feel his anger. He was like, that's not true. This is a disease that affects men more. And so I wrote back to my editor and I said, listen, I know I'm a little long and you want to be cut words, but I need you to understand that I'm adding a 1,000 words right here for this man because he's an example of the problem in action, and I'm not removing this. He didn't even read the citations, right? So I add whatever, and then it goes to the lawyers, and the lawyer comes back with, this can't possibly be right, I think you need to remove this section. And I'm thinking, what is so threatening about explaining that women are suffering from heart illnesses? And I think it's because for most of the 20th century, latter half of the 20th century, heart attacks were associated with men having stress at work. So uh, in fact, the fact of heart attacks is like a masculine thing. And I'm like, no, actually don't fight with me. Fight with the CDC, fight with Johns Hopkins, fight with Brigham Young, fight with Mass General. Like it's, I'm literally just sharing information that you don't like. But yes, and it's not just the heart right? It's everything. It's autoimmune disorders, self-harming behaviors, anxiety and depression. Um, There's so many things that suppressed and repressed anger are are part of, not necessarily direct causation, pain regulation, right? Like the list
0: just went on and on. Yeah. The autoimmune piece has been really fascinating to watch. I see that when people have healed, whether it's from like complex PTSD or long-term eating disorder, and then all of a sudden there's like more stuff that comes up, right? <laughs> but the complex trauma piece has been pretty consistent mm-hmm. with folks who, um, have had, you know, a lot of tr- relational trauma in their background mm-hmm. and then have these autoimmune struggles. Okay. This one also stood out to me. If your appearance is important to you and you know that the studies show that it is for right. an overwhelming majority of women, it's important to consciously balance how our bodies look, with our body's health and competence, and then you add self-objectification makes it hard to feel your anger or do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Can you say more?
1: Sure. So self-surveillance, which is that constant watching that we do of ourselves, our hair, our eyes, our weight, our pose—you know, there's so many ways that we learn to self-surveil, so that we look our best, so that. We don't look too old so that we don't look too young so that we don't look too mad, whatever it is, right? There's self-surveillance. Self-objectification is a deeper quality of that which is where our, our bodies, we only see them from the outside as objects the mm-hmm. way other people see them. And really and truly one of the more disturbing facts that I've had to process in this work over decades is that in the United States, girls start sexualizing themselves and self-objectifying at the age of six. Mm. And they did some very yep. clever studies to look at that. And when you self-objectify, in fact, you lose the ability to feel your own sensations. Um, interoception, which is the ability to feel what's happening inside of your body is reduced. Right. Um, so things like knowing, feeling your own pulse, um, you, you lose the ability to do that, your heartbeat. So along the way, you also lose the ability to connect what's happening in your emotions with your body. And we tend to think that emotions happen in the brain, but in fact, it's, it doesn't work that way, nope. right? Emotions are entirely embodied. Your cognition is embodied. And there's this rapid, which we don't, we can't even process it. It's just a back and forth throughout our entire system. And we lose the ability to recognize when we're angry. That definitely, I know, happened to me. Like I couldn't even, you know, the, whatever this, whatever it is, a racing heartbeat or the flush or whatever it is that might, you might've thought when you were seven, oh, I'm angry about it. When you're 27, you don't have that sense. You're like, oh, I'm not angry. I must just be hot. And then three days later you're like, oh man, I was fucking mad. But then, then it's too late, you know? Yeah. And the fact
0: that it, it's still hard for folks to trust that we feel things and are processing things before we get language yes. around it. And to start to paying attention to our bodies. Yes. Yet that self-objectification and the protection that happens and the the masking and the yeah. conform all I mean, but it how that really does shut down. Our anger and other emotions—we're we're shutting down our data center.
1: Yeah, and we're hurting ourselves yeah. when we do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and billions of dollars are spent to celebrate this
1: process. Right, and it's—I think it's interesting too. I've just—I've just written another book about resilience and the bankruptcy Ooh. of resilience narratives, and the thing that's really striking to me is that women, of course, are much more associated with the body and with irrationality. And it became very clear to me along the way that we think emotions are irrational, right? And we think thoughts and then we have emotions. But in fact, that's also not true the way that whole equation works. But anger is rational, right? Like when something happens and you have a response that is a rational response to the bad thing, you're going to feel angry. Like, you don't feel giddy with happiness when something bad happens. That would be an irrational response, right? You become hysterical, that's irrational. But mind you, I'm using the word hysterical with the full knowledge that that too is part of the problem, right? Like, like we've got seminal works in hysterical women. But I think that we really need to break down that mind-body rational-irrational dualism to get to the heart of this problem.
0: No question, and that's the work where there's so much in the self help industry: change your thoughts, change your life. Yes. You know, and Mental all of these. And- oh gosh, yes, yeah, all of that. And you you do a good job addressing this in your book. It's not about just raging on and spilling our rage no. on everyone without guardrails or respect and boundaries. You really do do a good job of talking about it's not whatever goes, um, but it's just it's start connecting with our anger. Mm-hmm. Um, And getting to the heart of that. And I guess, you know, I'm curious, how has your understanding and expression of anger in your life changed since you were younger? And what does anger kind of your relationship with anger mean to you today?
1: Well, I had to teach myself how to be angry. I had to teach myself how to even think about being angry because it was so off limits to my mother, to my grandmother, to me. And I also didn't have an angry father. I was blessed to not have an angry father. The number of times my father expressed anger to me personally, I could count on one hand. He just wasn't a raging, angry person. If he had a problem, he would tell you what the problem was, and then you would talk about it. You know, And I'm really fortunate, because I know that that's not a lot of people's experience. And I write about that, too, in fact, because... Mm-hmm. It gave me the freedom to say things and to test and to push and because I never was scared of him and too many people grow up scared at home, you know, and that's a lot because of dysfunctional anger. Mothers get enraged, fathers get enraged, and then you just shut down. You're just too scared, you know, but in my case, it was more a good girl syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just be a lady, be polite. I won the the courtesy prize in fifth grade. You know, it was important to be considerate, all the sort of virtues of femininity. Um, and I started questioning all of that when I was fairly young, in fact. And it was because I was very close to my brother. My brother and I were best friends. We were two years apart. We did everything together. And then we reached an age where people didn't allow that to happen anymore. And they didn't mm. allow it in, to happen in a way that gave him more freedom and restricted me. And I just knew that was wrong. I was like, well, that there's no way that's right. So why are people doing that? And I'm still on a lifelong quest to understand that question, you know, mm. but I will say that I was driven to it out of necessity. I just thought, what is happening? I don't want to be sick and I don't want to feel this way, and so i better I better understand what's happening and It didn't take me long to get to this to be honest.
0: so what are the stakes for all of us right now at this time to express our anger instead of silence it?
1: Well, first of all i I want to acknowledge what we just talked about, which is that that's not an option for many people. yeah, they are in dangerous situations, they're in vulnerable yeah. situations. They're in dependent situations, right? So there are lots of ways. One of my goals was not so much that people should be out there expressing their anger, but that they should understand the ways in which it was self-destructive not to understand their anger. Right? So very few people ultimately are free to express their anger in productive ways. And that's the goal where we can all have all our emotions and feel safe and that we have trusted societies around, trusted, trusting people in societies. So let me reframe that because you're absolutely
0: right. And I, and I appreciate you address that in your book too, that this is this is not an option or a luxury right. for a lot of people in a lot of different situations. What are the stakes for those of us who can express our anger to yes. do so um, and not silence ourselves? in support, especially of those who are not able.
1: I think that's very important, right? I think it's very important to say things on behalf of people who want you to say it and can't say it, to put a stake in the ground, to be public, to be active, to change the stereotypes. It's a funny thing. Stereotypes change all the time. They really do. They're not, they they, they evolve. And so... If you don't have an image of what positive, productive anger looks like, you can't change the stereotype, right? The stereotype of the crazy woman, the angry black woman, the hot Latina woman, the sad Asian woman, the spoiled brat teenager, the old hag. You can't change any of those stereotypes until you have enough critical mass, until you have enough movement in the society that enables people to say, that's a lie, that stereotype is wrong. And look at what's happened as the result of women coming together in anger. Every feminist activist movement I've been part of, every intellectual movement I've been part of, starts off with pissed off women who have a good sense of humor, have unbounded energy, are willing to go out, ask for money, find money, organize, do what needs to be done, find friendship, sometimes find a lot of dissension. But are dedicated to making change. People have to do that in different ways. For some people, it's baking. For some people, it's painting. For some people, it's community activism. For some people, it's raising children in a different way than they were raised. It doesn't matter. You know, it's not, there's no rule about how people should channel their energy. And the anger is a form of energy, but you have to make meaning Mm -hmm. from it and you have to, you have to have enough self compassion that you don't want it to hurt you anymore.
0: That's incredible. Thank you so much. Um, Before we go, I've got some quick fire questions Mm -hmm. that I often ask guests at the end of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, what are you reading right now?
1: Oh my God. Oh my God. I just read a book called Reproduction. I loved this book and I hated it at the same time. Do you know this book? I don't. Okay, hold on. Um, It is a novel by Louisa Hall. And I knew what I was getting myself into. I, I knew it. But it's the most comprehensively written book I've ever read that describes pregnancy and childbirth and what it's like to be a woman of reproductive age. And I wrote in rage about the fact that my rage about abortion laws the cruelty of abortion laws stems from many different things along the way but that if you have ever carried a baby you understand that there's no separation that's a fiction it's a fantasy it's it's some kind of abstraction that men came up with based based on their experiences and if you've carried a child you are Building that child out of your own body and your blood and your energy and your food and your cells and your like, like there's just no saying. Oh, you're a vessel and you've got this thing. I mean, it's just absurd and and it's also brutal. And I'm happy for the Earth mothers of the world who don't think that, but for the vast majority of women who have ever carried pregnancies to any length of time or given birth died, lived, whatever, it's scary and it can be very dangerous and we don't talk about that because then people would really stop, (laughs) you know, if they had the choice. This book does not hide any of it. Okay.
0: Thank you for that. What song are you playing on repeat?
1: That's so funny. So I'm going to have to look at my, I, I do play a lot of songs on repeat. It depends on what I'm doing, but let me see. I actually do have one really great song. One second. It's called Do You Know Me By Heart by Cameron Avery and Say What You Will by James Blake. Oh, and Imogene Heaps Hide and Seek. For some reason, those were the songs I was listening to on a loop this past week.
0: Awesome. What is your favorite piece of 80s pop culture?
1: Oh, my God. Honestly, i got to say that the gender benderness of 70s and 80s pop culture it's sometimes, I think, really hard for younger people today to really appreciate the sense of change and imminent freedom before the backlash hit. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. It was just this wide open thing. And, and I know we have, you know, incredibly revolutionary queer cultures everywhere going on, but pop culture, stopped being that for a, for a long time. like it wasn't until maybe eight years ago that like women pop artists would even say the word feminist because it was such a dirty word to them. And that just wasn't so true in the 80s. you know if you think of someone like Debbie Harry, you think of what it meant to have reggae and ska and punk and all, all of that happening at once.
0: Some magic there for sure. What is your mantra right now?
1: I have no mantra other than, can I please sleep through the night? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Amen to that. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold?
1: <laughs> the unpopular opinion I hold is that boys are in distress and a lot of it has to do with their, not, their, their cognitive dissonance over not having dominance handed to them on a plate.
0: And who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human?
1: Honestly, I I really struggle with the fact that we live in a world that has such immense suffering mm. and that so much of the suffering is unnecessary and avoidable. I, I am I am no longer Catholic and I and I have a very secular orientation. But as a very young child, I will say that the Catholicism I grew up with was a social justice Catholicism. And you couldn't grow up in it if you were a child like me and not think that that can't be. we, we can't allow that to continue. So I I don't know if there's one person or one thing, but I just think everything has to happen at the same time always. You know, every little bit counts.
0: Every little bit counts. It's a great, great thought to end on. Where can people find you and connect with you
1: and your work? That's a good question too, because of course social media is just such a complete shit show at the moment. Right. Um, I have a, an Instagram page that's dedicated to my writing called it's the rage becomes her page um, and um, Facebook pages and twitter as well um i haven't been doing a lot of regular writing because i've been writing this book Um, but that's all of those places are where i would i would share my work
0: okay we'll make sure to link to all of that and i really do hope you come back and talk about this book that you're working on
1: i'll make sure um that i had sent you a copy
0: oh i'd be honored this yes. was a
1: joy. Thank you so
0: much for making
1: the time. It was so nice to talk to you. So great to talk to you.
0: And I look forward to uh, reading your new book. So thank you so much for all that you put out in the world. I really do value it. Thank you. Before you go, I want to make sure you take away a few of the many important nuggets of deep wisdom from my Unburdened Leader conversation with Saraya Shamali. Soraya put language and many citations in her book around why so many women feel angry and how anger in men is treated so differently in women due to gender roles and the ways women anger is valued as a parent and domestic worker and not valued outside of the home. She also discussed why women are so afraid to say what they need and the well-documented impact of this suppression and what it has on our health Like our heart health, autoimmune diseases, chronic pain, and so much more. Soraya also shared the dangers of detaching anger from femininity and how this causes women to lose connection with the protection and wise information that anger offers us. This conversation was an important reminder of the connection between stress, exhaustion, and unexpressed and unwitnessed anger. So powerful. After listening to this conversation, what stirred in you about your relationship with anger? How do you want to shift your relationship with anger? And what do you need to unlearn about how you see your anger and anger in others? I'm seeing more and more women (laughs) reclaim their rage and channel it to action, speaking up, pushing back and saying enough. But this often comes at a great cost in a culture that still says be nice, be agreeable, be conciliatory, be controlled. <laughs> We're not taught to trust our anger and instead suppress it for fear of the consequences. But the call now more than ever is to do the ongoing deep work so we can recognize, learn from and metabolize our anger in ways that our values aligned. This is no easy task in a world that wants to capitalize and exploit our outrage and to control us. And this is the ongoing work of The Unburdened Leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to sign up for my Unburdened Leader weekly email and work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And if this episode was impactful to you, I'd be honored and grateful if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with some folks that you think may benefit from it. And this episode was produced by the amazing team at Yellow House Media. Thank you, Yellow House. All right. There you go. We're on our way to episode 100.